Welcome to this edition of Beef Monthly. I'm Dr. Ron Lemonager, Professor and Beef Extension Specialist at Purdue University in the Department of Animal Science. In this month's Beef Monthly, we have changed our look a bit since we're still trying to do social distancing and I'm doing this from home. In this edition, we have segments dealing with the latest news, management tips, and Ask Dr. Ron question. This and much more. And now, a word from our good friends at Corteva, who have graciously underwritten this program. Your land is more than a business. It's a heritage that has been passed down from those who tended it before you, by those who shaped it, changed it, and cared for it. Your land has a legacy, one that you carry on, but also one you build on. At Corteva AgriScience, we are the stewards of a lasting legacy. We have a responsibility to Dow AgroSciences to maintain the relationships and trust they built and to build upon those foundations. To help you care for your land, to provide innovations that help you protect the hard work and investment you've poured into it. To help you build a legacy that can be passed on for generations to come. Corteva AgriScience. In headline news, we're going to spend a couple of minutes talking about how the COVID-19 has impacted the markets. In this last week, there have been several beef, pork, and poultry processing plant closures that are disrupting the marketplace. In the case of beef plants, the Tama, Greeley, Souderton, and Aurora plants have all been impacted. The suspension of activities varies by plant and is directly related to worker absenteeism and the number of COVID-19 infections. This is not packing plants trying to manipulate livestock markets. The result is that fed cattle marketings will be temporarily impacted as the cattle wait for shackle space. Producers with finished cattle that are ready may need to consider alternative management strategies that will allow the cattle to stay in the feedlot a bit longer without negatively affecting animal performance and carcass quality. The use of products such as Optiflex could allow producers to extend the feeding period another four to five weeks without sacrificing average daily gain, feed efficiency, or number of yield grade four carcasses. Since cattle prices and beef availability in the marketplace are important to producer sustainability, the next segment comes from a recent webinar I delivered April 9th on how the current pandemic has affected our beef markets. Bob asked me to, to kind of talk about where we're at with the market uh, on this beef side of the equation during the, the coronavirus uh, pandemic. And so one of the questions that, that has been raised is by some of our producers is why were the meat cases empty? Um, you know, we've still got producers producing beef. We've got auction markets that are still open. We got packers still processing beef. We got trucks that are still rolling. So what's the problem? And I'm going to say in a nutshell, it's not a supply problem. 
it's a problem of that that of demand and the shift in demand of product and distribution. So it becomes a logistics problem. If you look at food service versus retail, um, about 50% of the beef sales historically have been through food service. So think about the restaurants, the hotels, the rest, the uh, uh, institutional management kinds of things, the schools, those kinds of things. And when when we went to uh, shelter, basically shelter in place, what that's done is it's, it's moved all of the product and the distribution of product that would have gone through uh, food service now is being forced into retail. And and that doesn't sound like a big deal until you start thinking about, you know, what kind of products and how do the how do the products arrive in food service? They come in large volumes, okay? So they come in cases. They come in uh and maybe uh, wholesale cuts, and, and then, you know, uh, somebody like a Cisco or somebody uh, would go through a further fab, all right? And the other part of it is, so so different cuts, okay, thinking about that, and I'll talk about that in here in just a minute, size of cuts, uh, pounds per package, and, and then the last piece is really about labeling. Uh, whenever product beef products go into uh, food service, we don't have to have all the nutrition labels that we would have if we put it through the grocery store, for example, or maybe how to cook it, okay, isn't on those labels. And so it's created a logistics problem, okay? The other part of it is, is that, you know, just like the toilet paper issue, all right, you know, where everybody went out and started hoarding toilet paper, well, people started hoarding beef as well and other products along with that. And so we, there's been a tremendous increase in the number of freezers, for example, that have been bought, uh, refrigerators that have been bought. Uh, consumers have gone to the retail outlets, i.e. the grocery store, and really created a buying frenzy. Okay, and so if you think about a grocery store that maybe handles, I don't know, let's say 100 cases a week, of beef product, all of a sudden now the demand is for something like 500 cases, all right? And and this is now starting to slow down as as freezers get full. And so the beef friends, buying frenzy has actually tapered off a little bit, but that happened early in this process. The other problem is, is that warehouses where beef is stored Okay, and gets redistributed. Okay, was working at capacity. For example, if a warehouse had the potential of dealing with a hundred thousand cases, now the demand was for five hundred thousand cases, and they just didn't have the capacity. They didn't have the manpower, and they didn't have the storage capacity. Okay, to be able to deal with that. Adding to the top of that, now with the warehouses now handling more and more product and those kinds of things. Now we start seeing detention times to offload and onload at some of these warehouses. So that gives you just a little bit of a feel for why maybe some of the retail cases were empty in some of the grocery stores. Again, it wasn't because of supply. It was really because of a change in demand and where beef products were going and then the distribution system to make that work.
So the reality is, is that we have record meat supplies in 2020, all right? Boilers are up about 6% year over year. And first quarter, it looks like they're gonna be up about 7.7%. Pork is up about 4.4% year over year. First quarter, probably up about 7.6%. Beef up 1.9 year over year. And probably in first quarter, it's gonna be about 6.6% when it's all said and done, when we get that data. And that, but that's what the outlook looks like. So we have animal protein available for our consumers. It's just a matter of getting it in the right places. Recent reports indicate about a 77% increase in year-over-year, year, and this was for the month of March, surge in, in at-home at, at demand, all right? And it's just virtually overwhelmed the retail chain. And the graph that, that I've got down here in the bottom right kind of shows you kind of where we're at with poultry, the yellow line, uh, pork, the red line, and beef, the blue line down here at the bottom in terms of uh, red meat production. The next piece is uh, where are we at? So beef supplies are up 6% roughly year over year. And February placements into the feedlot, however, were down 8% year over year. March and April are expected, that was for February, March and April, when we get that data, it's also expected to be lower as well. So that means that less cattle are going into the feedlots. The bottom line of that is, is that those cattle are going to be on feed for 120, 150 days. So four or five months down the road, we probably will see a lower supply of beef, okay? But that doesn't mean to say that we're not going to meet the, the domestic demand, all right? What that means is that hopefully we're going to we're going to see the kind of the tail end of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, beef prices then should be a little bit higher because of supply and, and demand ratio. All right. Beef exports in February were the third highest month on record. Uh, we were up 15 percent uh, year over year from a year ago. Uh, Year over year, about 18%. And what that translates to the export market for at least through the month of February, we were running about $343 a head value because we have an export market. A recent analysis of the American Farm Bureau Federation says that all nearby futures are down. And, and of course, there's a lot of volatility in the marketplace, and so you got to pick a point, okay? But as of just prior to April 9th, all nearby futures were down. Ethanol was down 40%. I'm going to come back to ethanol here in just a little bit. Corn was down 15%, soybeans 10, wheat 3. Uh, the export market is holding that wheat demand, okay? So um, while it's down, it's not down as much as some of the other cereal grains. Beef and pork are down 30% uh, in terms of prices, and milk was down by about 30%. This graph just gives you a little bit of an illustration. If you go all the way back to the first of the year, okay, on the far left-hand side, and then you can kind of see what's happened as, as we kind of come in this time frame, all right, and i I got to move my, my computer here just a little bit. But if you look at, at, at this point of the graph, uh, that's kind of when we started getting information about the, the coronavirus and, 
and it started having an effect on uh, futures prices. And then as we went through uh, the month of, month of uh, February, we saw, you can see what's, what's kind of happened. I'll just point out, here's corn, the yellow line. Here's wheat up here at the, uh, the purple line. Soybeans are this green line. Live cattle is this purple line. All right, so we saw a pretty significant drop in futures prices, okay, as a result of the coronavirus, particularly during the month of March. In this issue of uh, producer focus, we've got Dean Gangwer from Cutler, Indiana, joining us. And Dean, you're a master cattleman. You I am. through the master cattleman's program. You've got a cow herd. Uh, you sell freezer beef. We sure do. So let's talk about your operation. Sure. The uh, operation started years ago uh, on the small operation with my family. And since then, uh, we have grown uh, from a small freezer beef operation to a uh, uh, considerable um, operation. Uh, we've grown from uh, 20 cows to 100 cow operation. But we are able to cow-calf finish and sell everything that's freezer beef. One of the things that's a little different in your operation is that you don't develop your own replacement heifers. You buy bred cows. That's correct. So let's talk a little bit about your philosophy behind that. Okay. Philosophy behind that was in our finished facility, we are able to sell our steers and our heifers through our freezer beef business. Okay. So that allows us the cash flow to reinvest back into the cow herd. The, process, the thought process there is I can buy the bred cows, the already bred to exchange money for my freezer beef cows, and then I'm able to get new, fresh new calves on the ground faster. Cows are already ready to go. I don't have to go through the heifer process, the different pens, feeding processes. I have one feeding process for all my cows, and I can continue to grow at a rate that I need. As well, I can buy cows when the market is right. I don't have to hold those heifers back to decide whether they're going to work or not, sell later. I can buy the cows when I can find them at the right price, the right kind, and as well, I'm, on the back side, I'm always selling those heifers off in my freezer beef business. And so, as I remember, you know, when I visited, uh, you know, your cows, you're buying young bred cows, okay? Yeah, we try to buy mostly five, six-year-old cows that are seasoned. We know the, the temperament of these animals to start with. They've all been handled, so we know that. And we've got some history on them. We know exactly what we're getting. And that's very useful to our operation. Well, and it, and it eliminates a management group, okay? That whole heifer development thing is an expensive process, and it takes facilities. That is correct. Right? So you've opened up your facilities to be able to really focus on your freezer beef side and on getting cows through weaning process and, and, and getting cows bred. The other thing is you don't have to worry about actually breeding to uh, calving ease bulls. All right, those what people refer to as those heifer bulls, right? Very true, very true. And so you can you can go for a little bit more performance in your calf crop, okay, because you've got cows that can handle maybe just a little bit bigger calf. Well, that's exactly right. You know, when we look at our bulls, we definitely can get some growth. I look at our EPDs and see what they can do for us, and, and we definitely do that with our Angus bulls, and that's spectacular. But what you hit on there is we can utilize our full facility for these cows. We have no special heifer pens or anything. We can utilize every acre we've got for these cows, and it works well for us, and the time management is, is beneficial to us. One of the other things that you mentioned that, that we need to probably spend just a minute on, and that's you built a monoslope. Yes, we did. With a deep bed pack. We sure did. Talk about your thought process of going through and why you did that. Uh, when we started years ago, um, as most of us in Indiana did, we were feeding cattle outside. Uh, the conditions just weren't good, okay? 
So we had to come up with a way we wanted to increase uh, our rate of gains and our performance on these calves um, and have an environment that, that uh, allowed us to do that. Uh, after a lot of research, the Monoslope cattle barn um, came to bear. And uh, so we, we got it built and uh, we started in it. Um, the key factors we found immediately, as you mentioned, the bed pack system, uh, is self-digesting, um, self-composting, and as well generates additional heat for the stock. Um, when you have something like that, it's such a positive thing. Uh, the way to design, the airflow, uh, the feeding area, the drinking area, um, our rate of gains really did really well with that, and, and it got our, our freezer beef business to the next level, as well as the storefront. Uh, when people come to our farm, they come to look at our barn and see what our cattle are doing, and we can show them firsthand exactly what our cattle can And I think you, if I remember right, you got four pens. Correct, we do. And then you've got a manure pit. Yeah, okay, manure so bay in the middle, absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, and I think you're using corn stalks. Uh, we are. For, we are. For your bedding. Yep. So cattle produce 60% of their manure uh, where they eat. I think most of us know that. But we have a 16-foot scrape alley that allows us to clean the, the uh, feeding area um, whenever need be. And the bed pack area then is annually cleaned. We can hold a year on that bed pack system, and then we annually will clean that out. But then we can put any more manure in the manure bay inside storage, uh, and then we can utilize it for nutritional values on the fields. Um, as well as, as environmentally, um, we're being a good steward to the land and, and to the environment. Anything else? So one unique thing, Ron, that we've been able to do, um, besides the customers coming and buying beef directly off the farm, which has been huge uh, to our operation, um, we also have a local packing plant. Uh, Parrots and Flora have found value in our livestock, and they are um, purchasing our livestock, putting their case, which has also been great for our business. That transferred right into restaurants. Uh, we now have the Riverside Restaurant in Monticello, Indiana, that is serving our meat as specials. And a handful of small other restaurants, when the meat is available, will do it as well. So we have, trans we have really moved forward in our business from just feeding local farmers and, and folks in the area to being able to go to a packing plant, present our product there, to move from there to the restaurant side. And uh, we've been able to do all this within the last 10 years. So and we're really excited. Truly value added now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Value added. Uh, we, do, we do very well with it. Yes. Wow, it's a busy farm out there, as you pretty well know. Um, we found a lot of value, um, you know, in distiller's grains and, and, and fresh corn and doing things in-house. Uh, a lot of neat things that we've learned over the years of, of having this monoslope cattle barn. And um, it's just been a real joy and a real fun, fun journey. Dean, thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Ron. Really appreciate it. Well, it's early spring, probably April, and we are, we're getting tired as producers, I think, of feeding hay, and, and we may be running short on forage. Um, and the cows, quite honestly, are looking across the fence that maybe some spring grass is starting to break dormancy. Um, you know, so our topic today is going to be, you know, when should I turn out? I'm Dr. Ron Luminager, Beef Extension Specialist in the Department of Animal Science at Purdue University, West Lafayette, Indiana. And I'm Keith Johnson. I am the Purdue University Extension Forage Specialist based out of West Lafayette, Indiana. Keith, you know, we're, we're, we're dressed a little different today. We are. Okay. Uh, when I got up this morning, it was uh, cold enough to put on ski pants, okay, when I was doing chores. And uh, you're dressed in short sleeve shirt today. Well, I looked uh, at the weather forecast, and uh, they said it was going to be in the mid-60s, and I thought it'd be hot dressed like you. So, yeah, we've got that time of the year that it starts cool and can get warm, but you know, the last few weeks of this particular season, it has been 
extremely cold. And I'm hearing that there are some people that don't have enough hay in inventory. So let's let, let's start out then talking in this discussion about you know this early growing season condition and what how does that affect the forages and what do we need to be thinking about? Well, essentially, if you will, if the temperature doesn't get above 45 or 50 degrees during the day and it's cold at night, it's essentially like being in a refrigerator. Not much is going to happen in regards to growth. And so we need to start getting temperatures that are consistently, you know, above 55 degrees uh, during the day and probably not dipping below 30s at night to really have an accentuation of growth. And again, there are some seasons that we think it's time to graze, but the forage says not yet. Well, what about the, the ground conditions? Kind of the other piece of that, right? You know, so what do we need to be thinking about there in terms of its effect on the plant? Well, when we have saturated soil conditions, we do have to have oxygen in that soil to have proper root growth, which then grows the forage above ground. And when the, when the soil is saturated, there's just not much oxygen there to grow roots to start the process of, of growth. So uh, the other thing is when we start early and grazing and uh, when the soil is saturated, we can have some really extreme hoof action that can do long-term damage to those plants, uh, maybe even more than this particular season if we're not careful. So what's the ramifications then? I mean, what, you know, if, if I've trampled up my, my pastures and I've, I've kind of hurt the growth of those plants, what's likely to happen as the season goes on with those disturbed areas of soil? Well, essentially, you have a plant that's trying to recover if we let it, but at that particular season, it's going to be one that's going to lag behind, and productivity is not going to be what it could have been if we wouldn't have been out there grazing too early on too wet a soil. Is it likelihood that weeds will start to pop up? And now that you've kind of broken that seed surface and got down into maybe some what we always used to refer to as the seed bank, sure. if you will. Well, weeds can be opportunistic. And when you're opening up a nice tight sod because of hoof action, uh, it definitely does allow what seed may be in that upper few inches of soil to, to grow. And a good portion of that probably is going to be some weeds that we don't want to have part of our pasture. So we've got this short harvested feed, and we know that the pastures aren't quite ready for grazing. What are some options that we can, can do to let the grass grow, to let the soil firm up? What, what are some things that we can do? Well, you, you mentioned, you know, kind of a delayed turnout, right? And so, you know, I think as a producer, you've got a couple options. One of them is you can sure go out and you can buy hay, all right? And I think that that's one of the expensive options. Uh, but it's sure an option, and I think, you know, you've got to be a little bit careful of that uh, when you're buying hay. Uh, not only the expense, but also the forage quality that you're getting. You know, are you buying somebody else's weeds that are going to come back? You might, I might have a short-term solution, but I may have a long-term problem with that. So don't just look for volume, but yeah. look for quality of the product. I, I think so, and, and I guess I would take maybe even a low-quality forage that doesn't have weeds in it, if I could do that, because I can supplement around it, okay? Uh, that, too, is an expensive option, okay? I mean, the higher the quality of the hay, the closer we come to meeting the requirements of the animal, you know, and, and so it's, you know, is the combination of a low-quality forage and a supplement cheaper than buying a higher-quality 
hay to start with. So I, I guess I would recommend that producers, if you're buying hay, hay in general, but, but particularly if you're buying hay, you know, to get it tested, all right, so that you can minimize how much supplemental feeds you're putting into these cows uh, to meet their requirements and not overfeeding, but also not underfeeding because both of those are expensive options well, as certain, well. Certainly with a spring calving herd, you're going to need higher quality feed too because they're okay. lactating for that calf. So, so kind of a second option would be to limit feed hay, all okay. right? And, and, uh, and when you limit feed, unless it's a really, really high quality forage, you're probably going to have to, to supplement it as well. Uh, but it is a way to extend your forage supply. And then probably the third option would be to cull those non-productive cows. So if you've got some cows that somewhere aborted along the way during the winter, you know, and, and she's not going to have a calf, or maybe it's the cow that lost her calf. Uh, you know, maybe there's a few cows at the bottom end of the herd that, uh, you know, you might even be able to sell as a cow-calf pair. So right? essentially you have fewer mouths to feed during right. that particular time. Just to, to reduce the needs on your forage inventory. Right. Yeah. So what about, uh, why not just feed corn? We've got plenty of corn. That Couldn't that be part of the diet? Well, and, and corn sure is, uh, I mean, we've, I mean, it's been the traditional feed, okay? If you look back in time, you know, I grew up feeding corn. I mean, that's what we did, yeah. all right? The, the challenge with corn is that if I feed more than about 0.3% of body weight. So a 1,200-pound cow, that's about 3.6 pounds, right. all right? When I have to go above that, I put so much starch in the rumen that it drops the rumen pH. And that is not conducive to really good fiber digestion of the forage component of the ration. So I, I, I like to, for producers to at least consider uh, using a high-fiber feed. And things that like soybean hulls, like corn gluten feed, uh, or combinations of those. Uh, the challenge, I think, is that, you know, if you feed straight corn gluten, maybe you're feeding too much protein. Right? I mean, we run that risk, uh, and that could have some negative implications on reproduction. Right. So I like to think in terms of combinations. And we've, here in Indiana, at least, we've got a number of our producers that are feeding a 50-50 blend of soybean hulls and gluten. Uh, that's kind of a nice utility feed, okay? I can feed it to developing heifers. I can feed it to cows. I can feed it to my bulls. Uh, probably not a feedlot finishing ration, but it does work really, really well on the female and the reproduction side of our of our operation. So kind of summarize then, Ron, for producers in this cold spring, just a couple of key points related to feeding feeding them until we do get grass that's at least four or five inches tall. Well, I mean, I think, you know, limit feeding is sure a, a very viable option, um, you know, to build a stretch that supply. Yes, I'm probably going to, more than likely, unless my hay quality is really, really high, I'm probably going to have to think about supplemental feeds. I would prefer, okay, if that number gets up above, you know, three and a half, four pounds of needed supplement, that we probably start to think about more of a high fiber supplement uh, as opposed to just pure corn. Okay. Well, very good. Keith, any last comments, any thoughts that, you know, we haven't talked about on this particular topic? Well, and I think one of the lessons here is no season is exactly alike. Uh, you'll find that some years that you'll be turning out 
10 days earlier than what you might think it ought to be, and some days it's going to be two weeks extended, and it all depends what Mother Nature provides in terms of moisture and temperature, and so one needs to be aware, and so don't necessarily live by the calendar to a fault, but certainly take into consideration the growth of the grass in terms of the right turnout time. I agree. Well, I think that wraps up our discussion of when producers should consider turnout to pasture uh, at the beginning of the grazing. This presentation was a production of the Animal Science Department at Purdue University.